That's right. Obsession is a natural human state. It doesn't become a problem until a parent, caretaker, or teacher, and eventually society as a whole, begins suppressing this fixation or obsession. They often make the child feel as if his or her commitment to a goal, any goal, in fact, is wrong rather than something natural and very right. At this point, many children begin to assume that their interests, their intense interests in life and their discovery for life, their innate commitment to being fully engaged is somehow wrong or unnatural. They have essentially been bullied by others who have long ago given up on their own obsessions in order to change the behavior of those still obsessed. This is when a person moves from higher levels of commitment and action and drops down into lower average levels of actions. Lest you think I'm talking about something with which I have no personal experience, I should tell you that I've just had my first child, and I will admit that although her obsessive nature rears its head at inconvenient times for me, I never want to suppress or stop that. It is my fervent wish that my daughter becomes obsessed with whatever her dreams are that she never gives up achieving those dreams and then spends the rest of her life improving on them. I love the feeling that comes with being obsessed about an idea. I admire seeing others who are that fanatical and committed. Who isn't moved by people or groups that go after things in which they believe with their complete heart? Or who is so consumed by their ideas that they wake up to their dreams each day, work on them all day long, and then go to sleep and actually dream about them throughout the night? As soon as other people are able to see your intention, your conviction and commitment in the passion of the individual's thoughts, ideas, and movements, they will get out of the way. I suggest that you become obsessed with the things you want. Otherwise, you're going to spend a lifetime being obsessed with making up excuses as to why you didn't get the life you wanted. It is unfortunate that people with this kind of voracious obsession and fierce drive, this fixation for success, are somehow categorized as off-balance, work-addicted, obsessive, in a bad way, and a whole litany of other labels. Just imagine, what if the world saw a person's unwavering passion, undying obsession, and a bonfire-like desire to see their goals all the way through as gifts rather than as defects or diseases? Wouldn't we all accomplish more? Why do people have to turn a passion for excellence and an obsession to succeed into something negative? It's interesting, however, that once the obsessed finally do become successful, they're no longer labeled as crazy, but instead become geniuses, exceptions to the rule, and extraordinary. What if the world admired, expected, and even demanded that we each operate every single day with an obsessive focus on our goals and dreams? What if we actually punished the people who didn't act with obsession, passion, commitment, and we then rewarded those who saw their projects all the way through to success? Our society would be overwhelmed with inventions, solutions, new products, and higher levels of efficiency. What if the world encouraged obsession instead of judging it and mislabeling it? What if the only thing standing in the way of your greatness was that you just had to go after it obsessively? persistently, and as though your life depended on it. Well, it does. Would human beings have made it into space if a team of people hadn't been obsessed with making it into space? Can a country become great without its leaders being obsessed with greatness? Would any remarkable leader water down his or her dreams and encourage the team to adopt a take-it-or-leave-it attitude? Look, of course not. Do you want your team drugged, lethargic, and robotic, or obsessed with positive outcome and victory. 
Never cut anything. Never dilute greatness. Never pull back on your horsepower and never put a limit on your ambition, your drive, and your passion. Demand obsession of yourself and all those around you. Never make it wrong to be obsessed. Instead, make it your goal. Obsession is what you will need to set 10x goals and then to follow them up with 10x actions. Remember, as well, that making your goal too small won't allow you to gather the right fuel or take the right amount of action to break through the resistance, competition, and changing conditions. Nothing great will ever happen without someone becoming obsessed with the concept and then staying obsessed while approaching each task, each challenge, and each moment as vital, necessary, and a must. The ability to be obsessed is not a disease. It's a gift. Exercise. I want you to write down the names of three people that you know have been obsessed and then later did something great. Number two, what good thing do you need to be obsessed about again in your life? Number three, why is it better to be obsessed than not be obsessed? And number four, what goal would cause you to become obsessed? Chapter 13, go all in and overcommit. Now that I hopefully have rehabilitated your opinion about the nature of obsession, let's discuss what we have to do to get you all in on every action and fully commit to every opportunity. You know, most people are familiar with this all-in concept as a poker term. It's what takes place when a player puts all of his chips at risk and either gets knocked out or doubles up. Though I'm not talking about money or chips here, I'm referring to a much more important bet. Your efforts, creativity, energy, your ideas, and persistence. Massive action is not like a poker table. You never run out of action chips in life. You never can use up all your energy and effort by committing yourself fully. The most valuable chips you have are not money. It's your mindset, your actions, it's persistent and creativity. See, you can go all in with energy as many times as you want. Because even if you fail, you can keep going all in. Most of society discourages the all-in mentality because we are taught to play it safe and not put everything at risk. We're encouraged to conserve and protect ourselves from losses rather than to go for the big payoff. Look, the giants on this planet are willing to make the big plays. They're willing to go all in. This mindset is yet again based on the myth that your energy, your creativity, and your efforts are material things with limited quantities that can't be replaced. But it's not true. There are certain things in life that do have limits. But you don't unless you impose limits on yourself. It's vital that you get your head completely reworked about taking action and that you understand there is no limit to how many times you can continue to take new action. Look, you can fail or succeed as many times as you want and then do it over and over again. Also, you can't ever hit it out of the park if you don't initially make contact and swing for the fences. And you will never hit it big if you don't discipline yourself to be all in when you don't take action. We have all heard the fable of the tortoise and the hare. The implied lesson, of course, is that the tortoise wins because he plods along and takes his time, whereas the hare rushes, becomes tired, and misses his opportunity to win. We're supposed to derive from this beautiful little fable that we should become tortoises, individuals who approach our goals steadily and slowly. If there was a third player, however, in the fable, who had the speed of the hare and the steadfastness of the tortoise, he would smoke them both and have no competition. See, the fable would then be called smoked. The suggestion here is to approach your goals like the tortoise and the hare. 
by attacking them ruthlessly from the beginning and also staying with them throughout the course of the race until finality. Remember, there are no shortages of how many times you can get up and continue. There's no failure unless you quit. It is impossible for you to use up or exhaust all your energy. It is impossible for you to exhaust your creativity. It is impossible for you to run out of ideas. Look, you can never lose the ability to come up with new dreams. There is no shortage on this. You'll always be able to create more energy, to think creatively, to look at a situation or event differently, to give someone another call, to use another tactic or act with more persistence. There will always be another hand for you to play. There will always be another day and another chance. If the bank you are working with continues to refill you with new supplies of energy, creativity, and persistence, then why not go all in on every hand? Entrepreneurs, and especially salespeople, suffer most when they fail to go all in, a topic discussed in my first book, Sell to Survive. Many sales professionals give themselves much more credit for trying to close the deal than they actually deserve, and they think they're doing so much more often than they actually are. In reality, most salespeople never even ask for the order the first time, much less five, six, or seven times. My company was recently hired to conduct a mystery shop campaign that validated this. We did this work for an international company to identify where the breakdowns in their sales process were occurring. We were trying to collect information on where the franchises needed the most help. We visited more than 500 locations to see what percentage of the time the sales force was able to position the client to even ask for the order the first time. To the company's amazement, 63% of the locations shopped never even presented the client with a proposal to purchase, much less asked them to buy. This company was about to spend millions of dollars on customer satisfaction and product training programs, when in reality, this is not their problem. The franchises and their sales team feared failure and rejection and were not even playing in the hand, much less going all in. Look, if a client comes to you and you get a chance to get in front of a client and talk about your product, but never then present a proposal to that client, I assure you, you will not get the business 100% of the time. Society has successfully taught most of us to play it safe rather than to go all in with every customer in every opportunity every time. This is perpetuated in the business world with things like closing ratios, which supposedly reflect the success rate of a salesperson. I'll tell you what I do. I'm willing to go for it with every customer every time and have the lowest closing ratio of everyone, but I'll have the highest production. All in, man. All in. I don't care how many times I bust out. I'll just reload my chips and play again. See, I can't go broke. Think about it. What's the worst thing that can happen to you if you just totally go for it? You may lose the customer, but so what? You still have unlimited resources to give it your all with your next client. You have everything to gain and you have nothing to lose. You simply have to rethink your approach. This brings me to the topic of overcommitting, another frowned upon and misunderstood issue in business today. How many times have you been told to undercommit and overdeliver? I have never heard anything so backward and ridiculous in my life. Let's say you're putting on a Broadway show that you're advertising to the public. Should you announce that you have a mediocre cast with just average singing ability? and then wait until opening night to over-deliver? Of course not. See, this phrase suggests, this phrase of under-commit and over-deliver, suggests that over-committing, or at the very least fully committing, somehow puts you in danger. If you're then not able to deliver as promised, supposedly, you'll leave the other party dissatisfied. 
Well, hey, why not overcommit in your promise and then exceed by overdelivering? Tell everyone about your spectacular Broadway cast and compel them to show up. Overcommit and overdeliver. I find that the greater the commitment I make to a client, the higher my level of delivery naturally becomes. It is as though I'm promising to both them and myself to reach a new level of what I can and am willing to do for them. The more energy I devote to the market, the more energy I devote to my clients or my family, the more intent I am upon delivering exactly what I said I was going to deliver. This, of course, goes back to acting with 10x effort rather than 1x effort. It's easy for someone to claim to be giving 110%, but then fail to fully commit in the first place, either because the person is playing it safe or they're afraid he or she won't perform to the level necessary. A common problem faced by most businesses is increasing appointments in order to present or show your product or idea to clients. The more appointments you could actually present to, the more appointments you could get, the more product you could show, the more successful you'd be. This is an experience that many businesses and individuals have. People who request an appointment, you're asking to get an appointment from someone, you're not willing to overcommit to the person who has to give up his or her valuable time in order to see you. Look, you need to make grand claims. You need to overcommit. You need to make extreme promises that will immediately separate you from the other masses of people that are trying to get appointments as well. And this will therefore force you to deliver at 10x levels. The only way to increase appointments and solve your business problem is to increase the number of people with whom you speak and then amplify the reason why this person should give you their time. The same goes for every step of the sales process. Whether it involves follow-ups, flyers, regular mails, emails, social media, phone calls, personal visits, events, meetings, or whatever action you're taking, dude, got to overcommit. Overcommit your energy, your resources, your creativity, and your persistence. Know that, that you're all in on every activity every time you take an action, every day you're in business. Now, you might worry, as so many people do, about being able to deliver. And that is certainly a problem. However, as we discussed earlier, you need new problems. There are signs that you're making progress and heading in the right direction. Remember, new problems means you're moving in the right direction. Learn to commit first and figure out how to show up later. That's right. Commit first all the way and then figure out how to show up later. You will. Most people simply never bother to perform and instead spend their time trying to wrap their heads around things that may never happen to them. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do when I get there? Don't worry about it. Commit first. Anyone who doesn't face new problems, but who instead grapples with the same old little problems his or her whole life isn't moving forward. Simply put, if you're not creating new problems for yourself, then you're not taking enough action. You need to face new issues and new dilemmas that will challenge you to find and create new solutions. Wouldn't it be nice if you had too many people to see at 2 p.m.? Or if you had a line outside your restaurant because there were so many people waiting for a table? Wouldn't those be good problems? You know, one of the major differences between successful and unsuccessful people is that the former look for problems to resolve, whereas the latter, the unsuccessful, actually make every attempt to avoid problems. So remember, overcommit. Be all in. And take massive levels of action, follow up by massive amounts of more actions. You'll create new problems, and I promise you, you will deliver at levels that will not just amaze your clients, but will amaze you. Exercise. What does it mean to you to go all in? 
Why do most members of society discourage going all in? What is the reason why salespeople fail? Fill in the following. If you blank commit and blank deliver, you'll make yourself grow because blank. And lastly, why do you want new problems? Chapter 14. Expand, never contract. As of the writing of this book, our country is still experiencing very serious economic stress. Unemployment numbers and financial uncertainty are reaching heights not seen since the Great Depression. During major economic contractions like these, the world becomes convinced to reduce, save, to be careful, and stay cautious. Although this mindset focuses on self-preservation and protection of assets, it is the very kind of thinking that will guarantee you never get what you want. And although the majority of the world has entered a state of contraction, small percentages of people and companies are still capitalizing by expanding. These people and companies understand that these times of tightening by the masses are unique opportunities to take from those who are taking a defensive posture because they're reducing their spending. Because contracting is a form of retreating, it violates the concept of the 10x rule, which demands that you continue to act, produce, and create in massive quantities regardless of the situations or the economic circumstances. Now, I will admit that it can be very, very difficult and counterintuitive to expand while others are promoting that you should protect yourself. However, it's an approach you must adopt in order to take advantage of opportunity. Remember, regardless of what is happening in the world at any given moment, most people are not taking massive action. Although there are, of course, times when you must defend, retreat, and conserve, you should only do this for very short periods of time and only in order that you prepare yourself to reinforce and attack again. You must never contract as a continued business effort. Although we frequently seem to hear reports of companies that fail because they expanded too fast, the case for many of them probably wasn't so simple. Most companies fail not because they stay on the offensive, but because they don't properly prepare themselves for expansion and cannot dominate their sector. The idea of constant, unwavering expansion is counterintuitive. It's even unpopular. However, it will separate you from the rest of the pack more than any other single activity. The task of expanding when others are contracting should not be reduced to some simplistic concept. This is a very difficult discipline to apply in the real world. Yet once you get into the groove of making it your innate, natural method of responding, the ability to continuously, relentlessly attack any activity will give way to forward movement. Any disagreement with this comes because most people only attack to the point where they meet resistance, and then they back off. It's kind of like challenging the schoolyard bully and then running away. It always turns out badly. If you approach trials in this way, challenges, the market, your clients, and your competition, they're not going to believe that you're committed to a persistent attack. Therefore, they will threaten or criticize you, and then you're going to back off. Look, you'll figure in your own mind that it didn't work. But the only reason why it didn't work is because you didn't stick with your attack. You didn't stick with it long enough for the market, your clients, and your competition to submit to your effort. Repeated attacks over extended periods of time will always prove successful. 
You must implement the tactic of expansion, persistent expansion, regardless of whether the economy and your surroundings are encouraging. I say this because we live in a society that promotes contraction most of the time. And when it does support expansion, it's typically too late in the cycle. Hence, the recent real estate meltdown. News of contraction should serve as an indicator for you to do the contrary. You never want to blindly follow the masses. They're almost always wrong. Instead of following the pack, lead the pack. The way out is to expand, to push, to take action, to lead, regardless of what others are saying and doing. I watched others in the same sector I work in start to cut their staff and their promotion dollars during the Great Recession which served as a green light for me to augment my own forces. I didn't cut employees. I didn't cut promotional spending. Instead, I increased both. Even though I saw our revenue shrink like the rest of the world's, I opted to cut my own salary because the money wasn't there as an alternative and then redirected those monies to promote my business, to keep staff on, to build new products. This helped me to increase my footprint and take market share from the organizations that were retreating. In fact, I spent more money on advertising, marketing, and promotion in the course of the 18 months than I had in the previous 18 years. I realized how counterintuitive this was and is for most people. And I fully admit it was terrifying. It was scary. Every night I went to bed wondering if I was doing the right thing, second-guessing my every action. Yet I knew that if I could continue, if I could persist to keep pushing forward while they retreated, tremendous ground would be gained. Even more important than the money I spent were the demands I put on my staff at the same time, and especially the demands I started to put on myself to repeatedly expand the use of our most valuable resources, not money, but energy, creativity, persistence, and contacting our clients. By doing so, we immediately increased production, outflow in every area. Phone calls out, emails out, e-newsletters, social media posts, personal visits, speaking engagements, teleconference, webinars, Skypes, telecom, everything. You, babe, we just poured it on. Over that 18-month period, over a year and a half, I then published four books, introduced four new sales programs, produced more than 700 segments of training material for a virtual training site that we created. I delivered 600 radio interviews. I wrote more than 150, probably closer to 200 articles or blog entries and made thousands, thousands of personal phone calls. While the rest of the world withdrew, we expanded on every front possible. Pretty much everyone in the world was being convinced that the only saving grace at that time was to save. And so they did. It's always intriguing to me that when people start saving money, they immediately begin saving everything else, almost automatically. This is very important to understand. It's as though the mind is unable to distinguish between saving paper bills or numbers in a bank, what you call money, and not also save creativity, save their energy, save their persistence, and save all their effort. They seem to do all at the same time. The whole world in this 18-month period of time, still going on today, the whole world started to hold back on expenditure of not just dollars, but their effort, while just a few people like myself, the obsessed, expanded. Who do you think comes out on top in those moments? People have asked me in my seminars how and why I decided to expand at a time where things were so uncertain. And my answer to them was always, look, I'd rather die in expansion than die in contraction. 
I'd rather fail pushing forward than fail in a retreat. Consider this yourself. At which of the four degrees of action introduced in Chapter 7 do you choose to operate? If you're going to die, which one do you want to die at? If you allow the economy to determine your choice and which action you'll take, you will never, ever be in control of your own economy. The solution? Get off your sofa. Get out of your home and make your way into the market. Get in front of your clients. Seek out new opportunities. Seek out old opportunities. Show them that you're advancing into the market. Only retreat briefly, only long enough to shore up your resources so that you can prepare for what? To expand again with more action, more energy, more effort, and more persistence. Your energy, efforts, creativity, and personality are worth more than the dollars that men create and machines print. And although spending money is the most common way for a business to expand, it is certainly not the only way. And it is not nearly as valuable as a human being or a group of human beings taking 10x actions consistently and persistently. Remember 10x, baby. You want to expand with the goal of dominating your sector and getting attention by taking massive action. Only then will you be able to expand your contacts, your influences, your connections, and visibility with the goal, with the obsession of creating new problems. You will then continue to expand until everyone, everyone, including your supposed competitors, knows you are the dominant 10x player in the market. And they will always associate your name with what it is they do. Exercise. What are some ways you can expand that only require, only require energy and creativity, but not money? I mentioned that there's only one time when you should contract. What was it? And for how long? When have you ever benefited from contraction? Has it ever benefited you? I want you to write those down. And lastly, when have you expanded your efforts and what results did you see? Chapter 15, burn the place down. Once you take 10x actions and start getting traction, you must continue to add wood to your fire until you either start a brush fire or a bonfire or, hey, burn the place down. Don't rest and don't stop ever. I learned this the hard way after achieving a lot of success and then resting on my laurels for a moment. This is a commonly made mistake. Do not do it. Keep stacking wood until the fire is so hot and burns so brightly that not even your competitors, not even market changes can put the fire out. Your fire has to continue to be stoked, and that means more wood, more fuel, and in your case, more actions. Once you start operating like this, it will become almost second nature to continue because you're going to be winning. You're going to continue with new actions. It's easiest and most natural to continue taking massive actions when you're winning. And winning is only possible with more massive actions. When you begin to see things heat up, you'll quickly become aware, even obsessed with the possibilities before you, and will start to see new levels of positive results. Your actions will start to perpetuate themselves like a flywheel that, once it gets going, continues going by itself. Newton talked about the law of inertia, an object in motion continues to stay in motion. Hey, keep taking action until you can't stop your forward momentum. You might even find yourself operating on less sleep, less food, because you're literally subsisting on your adrenaline generated by your victories. 
It will be about this time that people will start offering you their admiration and then their advice. Now, be particularly aware or wary of those who suggest that you've done enough or who advise you to take a little rest or, hey, it's time to take a vacation. Now is not the time for rest and celebration or vacations. It's time for more action. Andy Grove, one of the Intel Corporation's first employees, coined the saying, only the paranoid survive. And although I'm not recommending that you spend your entire career in a state of paranoia, I do believe that you must stay committed to taking action. Even after achieving success along the way, continue to take more actions in order to achieve and exceed your goals. The time to celebrate or take vacations will come. Right now, you must keep adding wood until the fire is burning so hot that no one and nothing can put out your success. One of the problems with success is that it demands continuous attention. Success tends to bless those who are most committed to giving it the most attention. Success is somewhat like a lawn or a garden. No matter how green it gets or how beautiful the flowers, you must continue to tend it. You have to keep mowing, trimming, edging, watering, and planting. Otherwise, your grass will turn brown and the flowers will die. That's the case for success. There's no retreating for those who want to create it and keep it. it. Look, it's a myth to believe that the successful get to kick back and stop making the very efforts that brought them their fulfillment in the first place. Always keep the four actions, doing nothing, retreating, taking an average amount of action, and taking massive action. Keep them in mind. The 10X rule means you're going to create success in quantities great enough that you're constantly in total control. The wannabes and people who get close are the ones who quit. They quit adding wood and they back off. Massive action is designed to move you past your peers, past the wannabes, and off the treadmill. The best way to quit worrying about your competition, the best way to, to eliminate uncertainty is to build a fire so large and so hot that everyone in the world, even your competition, comes to sit by your fire for warmth. Keep in mind, most competition is created by those who are unwilling to operate at the higher levels of action, those who are merely imitating the efforts of others. There can never be enough wood on your fire. You can never take too much action or accumulate too much success. There is no such thing as being talked or written about excessively, being covered too frequently, or receiving too much authority, or working too much. These are simply claims that mediocre people make in order to justify their own decision to be happy with the status quo. How can you ever take too much action when you have an endless ability to create new action? Look at the big players on this planet. None of them, none of them ever run out of energy, effort, people, ideas, or resources. They enjoy the gifts of abundance because they create abundance in their enterprises. So instead of resenting these people, hating them, man, admire and emulate them. If you do, you'll find that the more you commit to new actions, the more creative you will become. It is though your imagination opens up new possibilities pour out from new commitments. It is not even necessarily the creativity that is so brilliant, but the ability to take massive action that prompts the brilliance. I recently met with a very, very high-profile PR firm in Los Angeles whose members suggested in this meeting that I might possibly or should be concerned with the concept of overexposure, something I thought was an extremely strange concept. 
The notion of overexposure, I'm sure you've heard this, the idea that you can see or hear about someone too much or about a product too much. This is based on a concept that a person doesn't continue to generate new ideas and new products. The underlying belief is that an overexposed person or an overexposed product will somehow lose its value. But consider the following. Coca-Cola is known by almost everyone on planet Earth. You can find Coca-Cola's products in almost every store, bar, airplane, and hotel in the world. Is it overexposed? Should it hide its products? Should the company hold back in fear that Coca-Cola will lose its value because too many people are hearing about it, it's too easy to get, or maybe too many people are using it? This seems to be fairly ridiculous to me. And there are countless other examples of products and companies that prove this point. Microsoft, Starbucks, McDonald's, Wells Fargo, Google, Fox TV, Marlboro, Walgreens, Exxon, Apple, Toyota, even some athletic and celebrity personalities. Overexposure for most of you is not the problem. Obscurity is the problem. Remember, if you don't know me, then it doesn't matter how good my product is or how low my price is. Remember, if you don't know or know about me, then it doesn't matter how good my product is or how much it will do for you or how low the price is. And even if overexposure was a true problem, which is not, look, I'd still rather be overexposed than face obscurity. The sad but true fact is that most people don't even get in the neighborhood of overexposure. Most people never get inspired enough to build a bonfire so hot that others come to it. They're either miseducated, socially programmed to settle for less, or fear that their actions will somehow get them out of control. I promise you, this will not happen to you. You must build your fire so big and so hot that you not only burn the house down, at least willing to burn the house down, but you incinerate everything in your path. Go all the way, go all in, and then keep going all in until your fire burns so hot that people stand around your fire in admiration of your ability to take action. Don't worry about the resistance you're afraid you'll face from either the market or your competitors. They'll get out of your way once they see you're a force to be reckoned with. Exercise. What is the fire that you've always wanted to start and need to add wood to? What three things could you do to add wood to that fire today? Who can you get support from in order to continue stoking your fire? Chapter 16, Fear is the Great Indicator. Sooner or later, you will experience fear when you start taking new actions at new levels. In fact, if you aren't, then you're probably not doing enough of the right things. Fear isn't bad or something to be avoided. Conversely, it's something you want to seek and then to embrace. Fear is actually a sign that you're doing what is needed to move in the right direction. Look, an absence of concerns should signal that you are only doing that which you're comfortable with. And that will only get you more of what you have right now. As strange as it may sound, you want to be scared until you have to push yourself to new levels to experience new fears again. In fact, the only thing that scares me is a complete lack of fear. What is fear anyway? I mean, really, does it even exist? Is it real? I know it feels real when you're experiencing it, but admit it. Most of the time, what you fear doesn't even occur. It's been said that fear stands for false events appearing real, which aptly implies that most of what you're afraid of doesn't even come to pass. Fear, for the most part, is provoked by emotions, not rational thinking. 
and, in my humble estimation, emotions are wildly overrated and the scapegoat many people use for their failure to act. But regardless of whether you agree with my opinion on emotions, you must reframe your understanding of this one emotion called fear and use fear as a reason to move forward rather than as an excuse to stop or retreat. Use this frequently avoided feeling as a green light, this thing called fear. Use it as a green light to signal you of what you should do. Chances are that when you were a child, you found fear in irrational things, the boogeyman under the bed, for example. It was an indicator to check your closet and the dark corners of your room to see what was lurking. But as all children eventually find, the boogeyman does not exist anywhere except in the child's mind. Adults have their own boogeyman. The unknown, rejection, failure, fear of success, and on and on. And these boogeymen should be a sign to take action as well. For example, if you're afraid to call a client, then it's that sign that you should call that client. Fear of speaking with the boss is an indication you should march into his office and ask for a moment of his time. Fear of requesting the client's business means that you must ask for the client's business and then keep asking. The 10X rule compels you forces you to separate yourself from everyone else in the market. And you do that by, as I emphasized earlier, doing what others refuse to do. Remember, only actions. Only in this way will you distinguish yourself and dominate your sector. Everyone, everyone experiences fear on some level. And because the marketplace is composed of other people experiencing fear, interacting with both products and one another, look, the market will face fear in the same way that you and your peers do. But rather than seeing fear as a sign to run, as most other people in the market will, it must become your indicator to move, to go forward. Now, I handled this dilemma myself by omitting time from the equation, since time actually fuels fear. It drives fear. The more time you devote to the object of your apprehension, the stronger the fear becomes. So what I do is I starve my fear of its favorite food, time, by removing time from its menu. For example, let's say that John needs to make a call to a client, a task that immediately causes him to feel anxiety. Rather than picking up the phone and making the call immediately, John goes and gets a cup of coffee and thinks about what he's going to say or do. His lengthy contemplation only causes the fear to grow as he imagines all the ways the call could go badly and then all the potentially terrible things that might happen. If confronted, he's likely to claim that he needs to prepare before he makes the call. But preparation is merely an excuse for those who haven't been trained properly and who use it as a reason to justify their last-minute reluctance. You know what John needs to do is John needs to take a deep breath, pick up the phone, and make the call. Last-minute preparation is just another way to feed fear that will only get stronger as time is added. Nothing happens without action. Fear doesn't just tell you what to do. It also tells you when to do it. Ask yourself, what time is it at any point in the day? And the answer is always the same. The time is now. The time is always now, and when you experience fear, it's a sign that the best time to take action is at that very moment. Most people will never follow through with their goals when enough time has passed from the inception of their idea to actually doing something about that idea. However, if you remove time, when you remove time from that process, you'll be ready to fire. There's simply no other choice than to act. There's no need to prepare. It's too late at that moment once you've gotten this far. Now, the only thing that will make a difference in that moment of fear is action. 
Everyone has had the experience of failing to do something they wanted to do. Perhaps by the time you got yourself ready to do something, someone else had taken action already. And now, that's what you're regretting. Failure comes in many forms. It occurs whether you act or you don't act. Regardless of the outcome, I would say it's far preferable to fail while doing something than to fail by over-preparing while someone else walks up and scoops up your dreams. This scenario occurs in business every day. People give their fears much more time than they deserve. They feed it with time. They wait to make the personal visit. They wait to make the phone call. They wait to write the email or present their proposal because they're afraid of the outcome. Look, countless individuals share the same excuses for why it is not a good time to take action. The client's leaving town. The client just got back in town. It's the end of the month. It's the beginning of the month. The client's been in meetings all day. They're about to go into a meeting. They just bought something. They don't have the budget. They're cutting back. Business is bad. There's been a change in management or staff. I don't want to bug them. They never return my phone calls anyway. No one else can sell them. They're unrealistic. I don't know what to say. I'm not ready yet. I just called them yesterday and on and on. Look, all the excuses in the world will not change one simple fact. That fear is a sign to do whatever it is you fear and do it quickly. My wife tells me all the time, you seem fearless. How do you do that? I want to be fearless like you. The truth is actually quite the contrary. I am scared most of the time. However, I refuse to feed fear with time and allow it to get stronger on me. I opt instead to get things done quickly as fast as possible. I've learned that it's simply better for me to take the quick approach even if I'm unprepared. You will experience the same thing when you're finally able to take the plunge, man. Just push through the fear. In fact, you'll be amazed how much stronger you become over time and how much more confident you are to do new things. Taking massive action quickly and repeatedly will ensure that you appear fearless in the marketplace. The person who takes action on whatever he or she fears the most will be the person who advances his or her cause the most. Let the rest of the marketplace submit to anxiety and prepare unnecessarily for false events appearing real. Look, you got a job to do. Remember, fear is one of the most disabling emotions a human being can experience. It immobilizes people, and often it ultimately prevents them from going for their goals and their dreams. Everyone fears something in life. However, it's what each of us do with that fear that distinguishes us from the others. When you allow fear to set you back, you lose energy, you lose momentum, and you lose confidence, and your fears only grow. Have you ever watched some kind of performer eat fire? It appears that the trick here is to completely exhaust the oxygen that the fire requires for life. When the fire eater pulls away too early, the oxygen refuels the fire, which will then, of course, burn the fire eater. The same is true with fear. If you back off from it, even the slightest bit, if you give it even the slightest bit of oxygen that it needs to stay alive, it will get bigger. So commit yourself entirely. Remove time from the equation and you will snuff out your fears and be able to take more action. Eat your fears. Don't feed them by backing off or giving them time to grow. Eat them. Learn to look for them and use fear so that you know exactly what you need to do to overcome them and then advance your life. Every successful person I know of has used fear as an indicator to determine which actions will provide them with the greatest return. 
I use fear in my own life every chance I get to remain aware that I am growing and expanding myself. Look, if you're not experiencing fear, you're not taking new action and you're not growing. It's as simple as that. It does not take money or luck to create a great life. It requires the ability to move past your fears with speed and power. Fear, like fire, is something from which you should never pull away. Rather, it should be something you use to fuel the actions of your life. Exercise. What are your three biggest fears? Number two, whom do you fear contacting who could help you or improve your business? And number three, what'd you learn about fear in this chapter? Chapter 17, The Myth of Time Management. I should begin this chapter by admitting that I do not consider myself a great manager by any means. Neither have I been a great planner. In fact, I've never even written a business plan in my life for any of my businesses. However, I've always been able to effectively manage myself well enough to build multiple companies from scratch that are profitable. Time management has never been something I considered valuable for myself, even though I do spend time on those things that I think are most valuable. I often receive questions about time management and balance in my seminars. I have found throughout my career that the people who are most concerned with time management and balance in their lives are the very same people who believe in notions of shortages that we discussed in the earlier chapters. Most don't even know how much time is available to them or what tasks are most necessary to accomplish in the time they have. Look, if you don't know how much time you have or need, then how on earth can you expect to manage time and balance it? The first thing you must do is to make success your duty by setting distinct and definitive priorities. I can't do this for you. Of course, everyone's priorities are different. However, if success is a main concern for you, then I would suggest that you spend most of your time doing those things that will create success. Of course, I don't know what success means in your life. It could involve a variety of people and things, finances, family, happiness, spirituality, physical or emotional well-being, or if you're like me, it would include all of them. And remember, it can be all of them for you. I personally am not interested in balance in my life. I am interested in abundance in every area. I don't think I should have to sacrifice one in favor of another. Look, successful people think in terms of all, whereas unsuccessful tend to place limits on themselves and think in terms of one or the other. They may believe that if I'm rich, I can't be happy. Or, if I thrive in my career, then I won't have time to be a good father, a good husband, or a spiritual person. In fact, it's interesting to me to notice that the people who put limits on them the most about what is available to them are also the most inclined to talk about balance. However, this is a flawed manner of thinking that neither time management nor balance will resolve. Look, as far as I'm concerned, it's pointless for people to worry about time management and balance. The question they should be asking is, how can I have it all in abundance? Successful people have attained the things they desire in quantity so great that no one can take them away from them. And how can a person consider him or herself successful if he or she isn't happy? What happiness is there in being unable to pay the bills or provide for your family or worry about your future? The moment you achieve one goal you've set for yourself, then it's time to establish a new target. Quit thinking in terms of either or and start thinking in terms of all and everything. That's right. Quit thinking in terms of either or and start thinking in terms of all and everything. 
As I was writing this, a client sent me a message asking, man, do you ever rest? I jokingly wrote him back seconds later, never. I do, of course, like every other human being. However, I know how much time is available to me. I know what my priorities are, and I know it is my duty, my obligation, and my responsibility to go after them in the time I have. I challenge you. I challenge you to keep track of how you're first spending your time, your available time, and maybe journal it. Most people have no clue what they even do with their time, but then complain that they don't have enough time. Did you know that every single person has 168 hours in a week? And based on a typical 40-hour work week, typical, the average, average, U.S. employee only works 37 and a half hours of the 168 hours available with 30 minutes for lunch each day. And it's pretty unlikely that most people actually even work the average 37 and a half hours. In fact, the average individual spends 22.3% of his or her available time at work, 33.3% asleep, and 166 in front of a TV or online. And those comparisons assume that the person spends 100% of his or her time at work actually working. Then these very same people worry about balance and time management. But an imbalance is always going to occur when you don't do enough with the time you have. While most people claim to value time, many, most, in fact, don't seem to know very much about time. Like, who creates time? Do you create your own time, or does someone else do that for you? What can you do to create more time? What does the expression, time is money, mean? How do you treat time to make sure your time is money? What is the most important thing that you should do with your time? See, all these questions are worthy of your consideration and require your attention in order for you to maximize time. Now, let's assume that you have 75 years to live in this lifetime. That's approximately 657,000 hours or 39,420,000 minutes. Take any given day of the week. You have an average of 3,900 Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, etc. Now, here's the scary part of it. If you're 37 years old as you listen to this, then did you know you only have 1,950 Wednesdays left? What if you only had $1,950 left in your bank? Would you watch it slip away, or would you do whatever you could to increase it? I believe that I can do more with 1,950 weeks than most people will ever do. The only way to increase time is to get more done in the time you have. Look, if I could get 15 phone calls done in 15 minutes, and you get 15 phone calls done in one hour, then I've essentially created 45 minutes for myself. In this way, the 10x rule makes it possible to multiply time. That's right. The 10x rule makes it possible to actually multiply and control time. If I hire someone and pay that person $15 an hour to make 15 calls every 15 minutes, then I duplicated my efforts, and my time then becomes money. To really understand, manage, maximize, and squeeze every opportunity out of the time you have, you have to fully understand and appreciate how much time you have available. You must first take control of your time, not allow others to do so. If you listen to people discuss the topic of time, especially in regards to the amount they have at work, you'll probably hear a lot of complaining. People act as though work is something to get through, yet in reality, they spend very little of their time at work. Most people only work enough to make it feel like work, whereas successful people work at a pace that gets such satisfying results that work is a reward. Truly successful people don't even call it work. 
For them, it's a passion, a hobby, something they want to do. Why? Because they do it enough to win. An easy way to achieve balance is to simply work harder while you're at the office. This won't just leave you with more time. It will allow you to experience the rewards of your job and make it feel less like work and more like success. Try to take this approach. Be grateful to go to work and see how much you can get done in the time you have. Make it a race, a challenge. Make it fun. The first thing you do when managing time and seeking balance is to decide what is important for you. In which areas do you want to achieve success and in what quantities? Write down those things in order of importance. Then determine the total amount of time you have available and decide where you're going to allot time to each of these endeavors. Another thing to do is log how you are spending your time daily. And I mean every single second. This will allow you to see all the ways in which you are wasting time, those little bad habits and those activities that in no way can contribute to your success. Any action that is not adding wood to your fire should be considered wasteful. Think Xbox, online poker, watching television, napping, drinking, taking smoking breaks. The potential list is endless. Brutal, isn't it? Yes, it is. But look, if you don't manage your time, I promise you that you'll waste your time. Of course, things will change throughout the course of your life and in your career. You'll get older. You achieve and then generate new goals. Different things and people will enter your world. All these changes require that you continue to modify your priorities. For example, I listened for years to parents who told me I didn't understand how to balance work with family because I didn't have children of my own. Well, I recently had my first child, most assuredly an event that demands more of my time, and was able to experience this for myself. What I found was not a problem with balance or work, but rather a solution based on priorities. My daughter merely gave me another reason to create success, not an excuse to avoid working more. She is sheer motivation for me to do well because now I'm doing it for her as well as for myself. Look, you can't blame your family for keeping you from creating the success you deserve. They should be the reason you want to succeed at a bigger level. It might seem difficult, but there are always ways to make things work. Get yourself and your family members on a schedule that allows you to do those things that are a priority for you and them. For example, my solution when I had my daughter was to add one hour to each of my days in order to spend time with my daughter. My wife and I met and we created a schedule that will allow me to have time with my daughter and my wife and not negatively impact the work schedule, the production schedule that provides for our financial success. The first thing my wife and I did was build our daughter's sleep schedule around our priorities. We agreed that I would get up one hour earlier each day and take my daughter on an outing, just me and her. This would ensure that I would have quality time when I'm home with my daughter before I go to the office and before I become consumed by the day's events. It also would allow my wife some extra time to sleep in. Now, I've been doing this with my daughter since she was about six months old and it works beautifully. Each morning, I take my daughter to the grocery store with me and introduce her to all the people who work there at the grocery store. When I get back from our outing, the rest of the day is mine to produce in the business world uninterrupted. Because I get my daughter up so early, we're then in a position to put her to bed before 7 p.m. each night. Then my wife and I are able to spend quality time at the end of the day, not interrupted by a young child. 
We understand that this system will continue to change as my daughter grows older and that alterations will have to be made in it. However, the point is that we're controlling our time rather than just haphazardly trying to manage time. Our decision to set priorities and commit to a solution lets us be the boss, owners, the controllers of our own time. The busier you become in life, the more you have to manage, control, and prioritize. Although I certainly don't have this to some scientific formula that will magically make this easier, I can tell you one thing. If you start with a commitment to success and then agree to control time, you will create an agenda that will accommodate how you use time. You have to decide first how you're going to use your time. You must command, control, and squeeze every second of it in order to increase your footprint and dominate the marketplace. Get everyone necessary, your family, your colleagues, your associates, employees, to recognize and agree upon those priorities which are most important to you. If you don't do this, you will have people with different agendas pulling you in all sorts of directions. My schedule works for me because everyone in my life, from my wife to the people who work with me, know what is most important to me and understands how I value time. This allows us to handle everything else that comes our way. In our culture, we're frequently encouraged to slow down, relax, take it easy, find balance, and just be happy with where we are and then with what we have. Although this can sound great in theory, it can be very difficult for people who abandon every decision to ever be in control of their lives. Look, most people can't simply relax and take it easy since they never do enough to free themselves of the meager existence that comes as a result of mediocre actions. Work should provide a purpose, a mission, and a sense of accomplishment. These things are vital to every single person's mental, emotional, and physical well-being. People who promote the New Age esoteric advice to slow it down, take it easy, are encouraging a mindset that isn't doing anyone any good. Consider the types of traits this thinking has created in people. Laziness, procrastination, a lack of urgency, sloth, tendency to blame others, irresponsibility, entitlement, excuses, and the expectation that it's up to someone else to solve our problems. Wake up. No one's going to save you. No one is going to take care of your family or your retirement. No one is going to make things work out for you. The only way to do so is to utilize every moment of every day at 10x levels. Only this will ensure that you accomplish your goals and your dreams. Happiness, security, confidence, and fulfillment come from utilizing your gifts and energy to achieve whatever you've decided is success for you. And it requires every bit of your time which is yours and only yours to control. Exercise. How much time are you at work each day? Second part of this. What percentage of the time that you're at work does that represent of your total day? How much time do you spend on wasteful activities? TV, smoking, drinking, sleeping, oversleeping, getting coffee, having lunches, or meetings with no business opportunity. What are some of your time wasters? What has this chapter taught you about time? Chapter 18, criticism is a sign of success. Although getting criticized is certainly not the best feeling in the world, I have great news. Receiving criticism is a surefire sign that you're well on your way to success. 
Criticism is not something you want to avoid. Rather, it's what you must expect to come your way once you start hitting it big. Criticism is defined as the judgment of the merits and faults of the work or actions of one individual by another. Although criticizing doesn't necessarily mean to imply fault, the word is often taken to mean prejudice or disapproval. The dictionary, however, fails to include the following helpful bits of information. When you start taking the right amounts of action and therefore creating the right amounts of success for you, criticism is often not far behind. Of course, most people don't like being criticized. However, I have found that it comes as a natural result of getting attention. This may be why some people avoid attention in the first place, as an attempt to then dodge judgment or criticism. However, look, there's no way to achieve serious levels of success without getting attention. Yes, people will eye you and make it clear that they disapprove of what you're doing. Let's face it, no matter what choices you make in life, someone is going to criticize you somewhere along the way. Wouldn't you rather receive it from people who are jealous of your success than from your family or your boss or bill collectors for not taking enough action and creating enough success? Look, when you start taking enough action, it won't be long before you're judged by people who aren't taking enough action. If you're generating substantial success, people will start to pay attention to you. Some will admire you. Some will want to learn from you. But unfortunately, most will envy you and criticize you. These are the people whose excuses for not doing enough will morph into reasons why what you are doing is actually wrong. You need to expect and anticipate criticism as one of the signs of success. It will come when you start cranking at these 10x levels, often before your accomplishment is even evident. Beware. This criticism can come in many forms. It may first show up as advice from others. Why are you spending so much energy on that one client? You know, he never buys anything. Or you might hear, you know, you should really enjoy life more. It's not all work, you know. These are the kinds of things that people start to say to you to make themselves feel better because your abundance of activity highlights their deficiency of activity. Remember, success is not a popularity contest. It is your duty, your obligation, and your responsibility. A buddy of mine who's in the fence business in Louisiana once admitted to me, Grant, I don't want attention. The minute I get attention, the competitors start coming after me. I want to fly under the radar so no one knows what I'm doing. Now, although that's certainly one way to approach your success, you can't fly under the radar for too long and expect to ever make it to the top. Laying low in order to avoid attention and consequently criticism probably means that you're holding yourself back to some degree. Your fear of being attacked is keeping you from going for it completely. However, once the naysayers realize and acknowledge that you aren't going away and that your success is something they should imitate, not judge, they will give up and find someone else to criticize. Weak and overwhelmed individuals respond to others' success by attacking it with criticism. The moment you elect to dominate or acquire territory, you run the risk of becoming a target for these people. You see this in politics constantly. When neither side has any real solution, they merely distract all of us by just criticizing and laying into one another. It doesn't do anyone any good. 
Criticism of any individual or group should be a signal to the recipient that the person flinging mud is threatened by the entity he or she is actually belittling. People who habitually disparage others with criticism like this usually don't have a solution to their own situation except to degrade another. The only way to handle criticism is to foresee it as an element of your success formula. Much like fear, it's a sign that you're making the right moves in the right volumes, getting enough attention, and making a big enough splash. One of my clients recently called my company to complain that my staff was following up with him too aggressively. I called to ask him what the problem was. After listening to him malign my employees for doing what was essentially their job, I said to John, knock it off. These people are simply doing what they know is right because they know we can help you. The fact that you haven't made a decision to move forward and haven't pulled the trigger is what should be criticized here. But I will refrain from doing so because it won't do either of us any good. Now let's stop the negativity and do something positive to move your company forward. I then rewarded my staff for aggressively following up with my client. Receiving complaints about too much follow-up is an indication that my staff is moving in the right direction, not the wrong one. I refused to allow the client's protest to stop us and supported my staff in their efforts. We all understand at my office that criticism is part of the success cycle. I won't apologize for any employee of mine who is seeking success. And in case you're wondering, we did close the deal. This very same client now tells people with admiration and praise that those guys follow up like maniacs. When I finished college, I got a full-time sales job rather than taking a position in the area in which I had received my degree. Within a couple of years, my sales results had taken me to the very top 1% of all the salespeople in that industry and way ahead of the people with whom I worked directly. And if you think they didn't criticize me, well, think again. Of course they did. They made jokes about me, poked fun at me, tried to distract me, and even tried to convince me to cease the very actions that had gotten me to where I was. That's what lower performers do. That's what average performers do. They make others wrong for doing what is necessary in order to make themselves feel okay with what they're doing. The highest performers, the winners, respond by studying successful people and duplicating how successful people got successful. They train themselves to reach the top performer level. Because lower performers are not willing to step up and take responsibility to increase their production, they can only seek out to tear down those who are performing at the higher levels. When my book, If You're Not First, You're Last, hit the New York Times bestseller list, some of my supposed competition immediately began criticizing me. One person called the book's title arrogant. Another asked, who does Cardone think he is? Yet another suggested that I was getting too big for my own good, whatever the hell that means. One person even called to tell me to get a new editor because he claimed that the grammar was wrong. Did I pay attention to any of these comments? Not for a second. I had a New York Times bestseller. From what I can tell, criticism precedes admiration and, like it or not, goes hand in hand with success. First comes the criticism, then the admiration, and then the success. So keep pouring on the success, and sooner or later, the very same people who are putting you down will be admiring you for what you have done. Those who have initially judged your actions will later be singing your praises. Just as long as you take the criticism as a sign of your growing success and keep the accelerator on your actions at 10x levels. After all, what better way to retaliate against criticism than to keep succeeding.
Exercise. What have you learned about criticism now? Two, what criticism would you most like to hear from others? Three, give three examples of when you've seen people go from criticizing others to then admiring them. Chapter 19, customer satisfaction is the wrong target. The topic of criticism provides an appropriate segue into a discussion about what I believe to be the overused and abused concept of customer satisfaction. One of the first protests I hear from people to whom I promote the idea of 10x actions is their concern that customer satisfaction will somehow be damaged. They worry that if they and their company push too much or become overly aggressive, they'll somehow hurt their brand's reputation in the marketplace. Although I suppose that's possible, it's much more likely due to the overabundance of products and organizations available today that no one will even know about you or your company or notice your brand in the first place. The board of trustees of a national cable channel I was working with became concerned that a new show that the executives were very excited about did not fit the network's brand. I told them, if you don't start bringing TV to people's homes that is current and relevant and that people have to tune into, you ain't going to have a brand to defend. When you fail to find supporters, establish customers, secure investors, and close the deal because you fail to do whatever it takes to get the job done, then you hide under the excuse of protecting your brand and customer satisfaction. You just as soon have a shovel in your hand and dig your own grave. Customer service is the wrong target. Increasing customers is the right target. This doesn't mean customer satisfaction isn't important. Everyone knows that customers have to be satisfied and happy in order for them to return and give a positive word of mouth to others. If your service or product or investment isn't built on satisfaction, you're a criminal. And this book will only land you in jail sooner or later. Make your primary focus commanding attention and generating new customers before you worry about making them happy. Let me explain simply. Customer satisfaction doesn't concern me and my company very much. Why? Because I know we over-deliver to our clients and provide customer service that is well beyond satisfactory. We over-deliver to every client, and we never say no until we absolutely have to. We don't even talk about customer satisfaction in my office. We do talk a lot about how to get more customers, because attracting customers to our program is the only way to increase customer satisfaction in the first place. Look, you get it? Increasing customer satisfaction is impossible without increasing customers. Whether someone signs up for our free tip of the week or buys a book for $30 or an audio program for $500 or gets involved in our long-term training contracts you know, or, or, or pays our company millions of dollars to customize a training program, either way, I'm over-delivering. I'm going to over-deliver what's expected. I only concern myself with getting more customers. Then I over-deliver to my clients always. I am most worried about non-customer satisfaction, that is, the people who are dissatisfied because they don't have my product and may not even know they're unhappy. I know that the only dissatisfied clients that we can have are those who don't have my products or who have them and are not using them correctly or people that don't know me. We talk about how getting our clients to increase their usage in our material, our books, our programs, our systems, and our processes is the only way to increase customer satisfaction. Not getting a client or having a client use your products incorrectly or bigger outpoints than most of the ways that customer satisfaction is thought of. 
A customer getting the package a day late is an issue and should be handled. But look, the client who never buys your product suggests you have a real serious customer satisfaction problem because you never made the person a customer in the first place. The first problem you can easily fix. The second one will kill you. I seek out clients who are qualified to do business with us. I then attend to that individual or company until they agree to hire me, knowing that until they get my product or service, they can't be satisfied. This isn't a pitch. This is what I believe to be true. The attainment of the customer, customer insistence, is paramount to customer satisfaction. And customer satisfaction cannot exist without a customer. The attainment of the customer is the most important thing to me. Same thing in relationships. First, it's getting the wife. Then it's keeping her happy. Then it's growing the family. Then it's looking at new ways to keep everyone happy. What was most important? Look, getting the wife was paramount to wife satisfaction. It's impossible for a company to create success by just focusing on customer satisfaction. I believe that the trend of focusing on customer satisfaction has proven to be a detriment to customer acquisition. Companies become so consumed about their supposed customer satisfaction that many are failing to aggressively acquire and expand their market by getting new customers. Customer service is a business term meant to measure how the products and services that companies supply meet or exceed customer expectations after the purchase. This assessment, customer satisfaction, is supposedly a key differentiator between the brands customers follow loyally and those they abandon entirely. Yet most places that I go into never service me enough before the sale to ever acquire me as a customer in the first place. Executives tout the importance of customer service from their ivory towers, yet they forget to promote the attainment, customer assistance, the attainment of the customer to begin with. Most products don't get my attention so completely that I'm compelled to purchase them without the assistance of the company. Unfortunately, most companies and salespeople never bother to ask the customer to buy when given the opportunity and then fail to follow that opportunity up. Thus, they never make a client. No customer insistence equals no customer satisfaction. We do mystery shopping campaigns like I mentioned earlier for companies and have validated this over and over. The biggest problem with companies today is that they never made a customer in the first place. If you have a subpar offering, a product that doesn't do what you state it will, and that makes people feel like they've been cheated after the purchase, look, the marketplace will dispose of you sooner or later, regardless of your customer satisfaction score. Most people don't fail because they're offering an inferior product or a poor product. Most people fail because they never get enough customers. Does Starbucks offer the very best customer service and coffee available? Hey, I don't know. I do know that the company has made a serious investment in making it easy and convenient for you to buy their coffee. Is Starbucks concerned about people standing in line too long and getting the right coffee and being greeted correctly? Of course. But I assure you, the company is concerned first with the acquirement of the client. Does Google provide the best search engine and the best customer experience and service? Hey, I don't know. Does it look to improve the customer experience? Certainly. But first, it dominates the space so clearly and gets so much attention that it's the first site used. What's my point here? Brands that truly deliver customer satisfaction do not talk about customer service. They focus on customer acquisition. 
Customer insistence is senior to customer service. Emerging organizations first need people to know about them, then must do everything they can to make them happy. Remember, customer satisfaction cannot exist without a customer first. American corporations have become so obsessed with customer satisfaction that they have lost sight of the first and most vital factor, customer acquisition. Keep the main thing the main thing, as they say here in the South. Customer satisfaction should not be an initiative, but something so inherent to an organization that all its attention is focused now on customer acquisition. To garner the attention of a potential customer or market and then fail to capitalize on creating a user of your products and services makes no sense and is the most expensive of mistakes. Yet this is what happens with far too many organizations. Let's say a company successfully gets my attention long enough that I actually consider its products 